Our scripture for today uh, comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 1 to 14. It says, In those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Trinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. And she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them at the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, sleeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy. That will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. In the first century BC, the Roman Republic conquered most of the known world, but its political system was thoroughly broken. This led to an incredible and dramatic power struggle between some of the most powerful people to ever walk the earth. The Republic was destined to die and turn into an empire, and whoever won the power struggle would inherit all of Roman, Rome's lands and may as well be called king of the world. The story mates for really good TV, or reading, and there's a reason that Shakespeare wrote a play about it. It's got secret political alliances, rich and corrupt officials, seductive women, trips to mystical undiscovered lands, backstabbing, literally, and civil war after civil war. This drama lasted for about 100 years, beginning with the murder of the Gracchi brothers in 133. Then finally, in 31 BC, Augustus Caesar defeated Mark Antony at the Battle of Actium. He was the adopted son of Julius Caesar, who had been declared a god after his death by the Roman Senate, under compulsion by Augustus, of course. But because of that, Augustus called himself the son of a god. Where Rome was once embroiled in bloody civil wars, Augustus brought peace to the empire. He saved them from chaos, so he called himself savior of the world. Augustus is widely considered the greatest Roman Empire emperor of all time. And among his many reforms meant to make a sustainable bureaucracy, he decreed that a census be taken about once every five years. That way, Rome could take stock of its resources in all its far-off provinces. It would also give the opportunity to tax the provinces, making sure that tribute comes to Rome and enriches it. Finally, it reinforced that Augustus really was the most powerful man in the world. The census gave the opportunity to Rome to flex its muscles. If it could force everyone to travel long distances for no other reason than to give them money, then everybody would know who's in charge. About 10 years after the events of this passage, in the same villages, under the same governor, there was a revolt by the Jews that reacted against this census, and for good reason. The Jews in the first century were a proud people who strongly believed that they should have their own self-run government. Nobody really thought that the Romans had any right to rule over the Jews, so paying taxes to Rome was a really big deal. They were particularly angry about the census 
not just because it meant paying taxes, but because everyone knew that this was the time when Rome was flexing its muscles against them. It was like Rome was counting their cash and showing off while doing it. The census was a source of national shame for the Jews, so they revolted and tried to throw them off. But the revolt was so unsuccessful that it has basically become a footnote to history. Rome was unstoppable. That's the setting that Luke drops us in for this passage. You have the most powerful man in the history of the earth who calls himself the son of a god and the savior of the world, flexing his muscles by calling a census against a group of proud rebels ready to take up arms in defiance of him. We get used to this story that we read really easily. It's something that we probably hear every single year. But we should remember that the message that Luke was trying to get across with this story sounds completely ridiculous in its setting. There's this power struggle between Augustus Caesar and these zealous Jews about who is actually in charge. It looks like it's a conflict that's going to be decided using swords and spears. But Luke was saying that there was a third party in this conflict. And he was saying that the third party would be the one that actually went out in the end. Eventually, everyone would recognize that this third party was going to be the true king of the world. And that, thir true, that third party was this tiny little baby. And not a tiny little baby with royal parents, mind you. That would at least make some sense. Actually, a tiny little baby whose parents couldn't afford to stay in a place suitable for humans, who couldn't afford a cradle for their child and had to lay him in a feeding trough in a stable. What you see here is that every bit of us, what us humans think power and authority really looks like, is turned on its head. Everybody in the whole world thought Caesar Augustus was all-powerful, but they were wrong. The one with true power was the baby in the manger. The world thinks that where the struggle for power really plays out is in the White House, or on Capitol Hill, or in the UN, or in shadowy corporate boardrooms. They think the winners of this struggle are the ones that deserve honor and glory. But after a whole century of struggle between the Romans to figure out who would rule over the earth, it turns out the whole thing was for naught. They struggled for more than a century over the rulership of the whole world, but Jesus Christ was king and son of God and savior of the world before he even came out of the womb. What that shows is that the meaningful action in the story of the world didn't actually take place in the Senate or in the battlefields of Gaul or Actium but the most meaningful action was taken in the backwater province of Judea, in a poor village in Galilee, where a teenage girl took a step of faith in the God of her ancestors and said, let it be to me as you have said. What this means is that power really isn't centered in the White House or in Capitol Hill or in the UN or in shadowy corporate boardrooms, as much as they might think that's the case. Jesus Christ is king of the world, and he has all dominion and authority, so much that he makes those bigwigs look puny. All that matters is who recognizes the authority of the king lying in the manger. What that means is that the true power struggle is actually happening in the hearts of each of us, as we all struggle to faithfully follow King Jesus as he sits on the throne in the manger, as we all struggle against the demonic and try to follow the divine. It's the most consequential thing in the whole entire earth. And in case you're tempted to think otherwise, remember this lesson that this passage teaches us. That the one who's really in charge isn't Caesar Augustus, the winner of a century of Roman intrigue, but Jesus Christ, the baby lying in the manger, who was born the true Son of God and Savior of the world. Remember the lesson of the cross, 
that the one who was really in charge wasn't Pilate or the Pharisees as they fought each other, but King Jesus, the one who was proud to wear the crown of thorns and to receive the mocking praise of the Roman soldiers and who considered the cross his throne. This lesson teaches us that basically everything that the world teaches us about power is flatly wrong. Jesus has upended every bit of it. Just like the wise men and the shepherds recognized, he's the one person who deserves our homage and our loyalty. Jesus was creating a new kind of kingdom, not based on the threat of violence or the insecure gravity of power like Caesar, but based on self-sacrifice and love, even as he gave himself up in love on the cross. And all that matters in life is whether you recognize the authority of this king or not. Because Jesus is king, no matter what we say, but the struggle is over who is given the wisdom to recognize it. That means that every time you're tempted to sin or to chicken out from doing good, remember that you're participating in the most consequential battle in the whole wide world, much more consequential than any executive order or piece of legislation that's ever been passed. A few short centuries after the time of Augustus, the whole of Rome was conquered by Christianity without shedding a drop of blood. Caesar Augustus, perched on his throne with all the wealth that's ever existed, could have never imagined that the future of his empire would be decided by a secret meeting between the tiny dot of the Jews, a Jewish farm girl, and the baby that she carried. Listen to what the angels are actually saying here. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. The angels say that this child is the Christ, or the Messiah, and that this has been the hope of the world since creation. When God created the world, he reigned as king over it. But when Adam and Eve sinned, the world was exiled from God's rule. Where before peace and justice reigned, instead now we see the world today with war and evil. Since the day when God gave Israel a king, who was supposed to be the representative of God's rule on earth and bring order back to the world. But those kings were terrible, and they only made things worse. By the time that this passage was written, many people had given up on God returning to rule over the world. But now the angels were promising that this newborn baby would save the world from its sin and bring the righteous and peaceful and good kingdom that the world always needed. Everything that was wrong with the world was now being set right. And this was happening right under Caesar's nose. In fact, the angels call Jesus a savior, and not a savior in a really dumb way like Caesar was. They called Augustus Caesar savior because he stopped the wars by winning them brutally. It's almost Orwellian. But Jesus was savior in, the, in that he was spreading a kingdom of peace and setting right everything that's wrong with the world. And we are a part of that kingdom today, doing the work of Christ wherever we go. The angels sing, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And I think sometimes we really miss the words on earth here. I think that's because we tend to think of the baby in the manger as a completely different kind of ruler than Caesar Augustus. And that's true in a sense. Jesus' kingdom ends up being very different from Caesar's. Jesus' kingdom is based on the worship of the one true God and his Christ, Caesar's kingdom is maintained by the worship of evil pagan idols. Jesus' kingdom seats the welfare of its citizens, where Caesar hopes to keep his power. 
Jesus' kingdom is based on self-sacrificial love, where Caesar's is based on savage warfare. But there's a real sense where Jesus' kingdom and Caesar's are similar. And that's because they both lay claim to this earth. Like the one we're sitting on with its soil and buildings and people and stuff. Sometimes we like to think that Jesus was a spiritual leader, where Caesar was an earthly one. But the gospel makes no such distinction. There's a reason that in the gospel, the most important proclamations of Christ's power, whether his death, birth, or resurrection, all are framed in the gospels as taking place in the midst of a power struggle among earthly rulers. Paul says he disarmed these rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross. Sometimes we think that the baby in the manger and Caesar can coexist because they're in charge over completely different things that have nothing to do with each other. Caesar has the government of the earth, where Jesus is king of heaven. But when we say Jesus is king and Jesus is Lord and Jesus is God, that means we can't truthfully say that Caesar is king and Caesar is Lord like he claimed. We have a really easy time of saying that David represented God's rule on on earth to humans and among humans in 1000 BC. We have a hard time saying Jesus represents God's rule on earth to humans and among humans in 2000 AD. But we shouldn't, because Jesus really is a king in much the same way that David was, just way better. He came from the same line. Ibrahim Kuyper said, There's not a square inch of the whole domain of our human existence over which the risen Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine, and I own it. What that means is every bit of our lives is under the righteous and sovereign authority of Jesus Christ our Lord, the baby lying in the feeding trough and the cane crucified on the cross. We can't say this part of our life is our secular life and this part of my life is my religious life and never the twain shall meet. We can't say, I go to church and attend Bible studies and volunteer and the rest of it has nothing to do with my religious life. No, every bit of your life, from your church to your job to your relationships to your car to your wallet to your gas station to your sandwich rests under the authority of the baby lying in the manger and the cane hanging on the cross. And that's a good thing. Because whether we like it or not, someone is going to be sovereign over our lives. And it's very rarely just ourselves. Humans are social creatures, and most of what we, ha- what we do has to do with the people we follow. Have you ever noticed that people who try to show how unique or special they are tend to do it in all the same ways? It's ironic, but there's a surprising amount of uniformity in the punk, goth, and emo subcultures, aren't there? The lesson is that you're never going to be a unique and completely free-thinking individual, no matter how hard you try. What matters is who you follow and who is sovereign. Will you follow the promised king of the universe who shows the genuine and true way of being human by giving up yourself in love to others in a community of transformed Christians? Or will you join in with Caesar or the Galilean rebels, grabbing for whatever wealth or status or honor you can find? That's the most consequential decision anyone can make. And that's where the struggle really is. Let's pray. Lord, we couldn't see your kingdom come without you giving us your wisdom because it came to Bethlehem and practically no one noticed it. Give us the eyes to see your work in this world so we would be transformed into the image of your Son who reigns from the cross. Amen.